Do you have an answer for you? Yes, but you're not going to like it. It doesn't matter. We must know it. All right. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is... Forty-two. Yes, yes, I thought it over quite thoroughly. It is, it's forty-two. It would have been simpler, of course, to have known what the actual question was. But it was the question. The ultimate question. Of everything. That's not a question. Only when you know the question will you know what the answer means. Give us the ultimate question, then. I can't. But there is one who can. A computer that will calculate the ultimate question. A computer of such infinite complexity that life itself will form part of its operational matrix. And you yourselves shall take on new, more primitive forms and go down into the computer to navigate its 10 million year program. I shall design this computer for you and it shall be called... We need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 215, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a regular returning listener, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you're just a huge fan of Douglas Adams, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And as always, I'm so happy and delighted to have you here for the history and legacy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Leave this to me. I'm British. I know how to cue. Before I go into The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and just the plethora of information about that series, but specifically about the 2005 movie version, I just want to say a huge thank you to the wonderful reception to previous episodes of this podcast, Pacific Rim and Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part Dieu. Pacific Rim is a movie that I just love so much. Genuinely, I put so much of my love into that episode and you guys just loved it in return. And the Hot Shots movies are movies that I think everyone loves. I don't think anyone's got anything bad to say about a Hot Shots movie. Plus, I love doing double episodes. They're actually quicker to put together than regular episodes. But I appreciate that they're probably not as in-depth as a regular episode. But... I do have a few more of those in mind that I'd really like to do. So I like to call them Nanorama episodes, by the way. So you might get some more Nanorama episodes going forward, sort of throughout the year, perhaps. But this is not a Nanorama episode. This is a full episode on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, if you're listening to this on release day, you'll know that Verbal Diorama episodes are released on a Thursday. 
And Thursday was the day that Earth was destroyed for the first time by the Vogons. It's also the day that Arthur Dent began the most interesting journey of his life. This must be Thursday. I could never get the hang of Thursdays. Grab your towel. It's the trailer for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The standard repository for all knowledge and wisdom in the universe is called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it has this to say about movie trailers. Movie trailers are designed to give you an idea of the film in question in a very short space of time. Typically, they begin with the introduction of a main character who will very shortly have something so utterly fantastic happen to him Arthur, what the hell are those things? that someone just had to make a movie about him. Attention, people of Earth. Your planet has been scheduled for demolition. Hang on, we're hitching a ride. Often, this section is preceded by the words, in a world. But sometimes not. Trailers also normally employ a, a deep voice that sounds like a seven-foot-tall man who has been smoking cigarettes since childhood. <clears throat> the goal is to create a piece of advertising that's original and exciting. It's intelligent and provocative. In other words, lots of things blowing up. Occasionally interrupted by a girl in a bikini. That does absolutely nothing for me. Generally, trailers also feature heartless evil villains, hideous creatures, dolphins, physical violence, and of course, the promise of true love. Oh, for heaven's sake. And lastly, there is a final montage, often set to rock music. Let's do it! Come on! To these designs simply to blow away whatever synapses you have left in your brain. This culminates in a reveal of the main title, like so. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Followed by the release date, so that the audience might plan the next few months of their lives accordingly. Arthur Dent's ordinary life is appended when he learns that his home is about to be demolished to make way for a bypass. It's then appended further when he learns that his home planet, Earth, is about to be demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass. With the help of his friend Ford Prefect, a hitchhiking alien writer for the titular guidebook, Arthur narrowly escapes Earth's destruction and finds himself aboard a spaceship called the Heart of Gold, helmed by the two-headed, three-armed, eccentric president of the galaxy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, and Trillian, aka Trisha McMillan, the girl who stole Arthur's heart on Earth. They embark on a quest to uncover the meaning of life and the mysterious planet Magrathea, all while evading the relentless pursuit of the Vogons, a bureaucratic and poetry-loving alien race who filed the paperwork for Earth's destruction. Let's run through the cast of this movie. We have Sam Rockwell as Zaphod Beeblebrox, Most Def as Ford Prefect, Zoe Deschanel as Trisha McMillan, a.k.a. Trillian, Martin Freeman as Arthur Dent, Bill Nye as Slarty Bartfast, Warwick Davis as Marvin the Paranoid Android, Alan Rickman as the voice of Marvin, Anna Chancellor as Questioner, 
Helen Mirren as the voice of Deep Thought, John Malkovich as Humakavula, and Stephen Fry as the narrator. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a screenplay by Douglas Adams and Kerry Kirkpatrick, was based on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, and was directed by Garth Jennings. So where do you start with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? It's appeared in radio, book, TV, film and game form since it debuted in 1978 as a radio series on BBC Radio 4, a two-part series written by Douglas Adams. The success of the radio series led to Adams adapting it into a novel first published in 1979, a novel that I personally love, I've read several times, somehow seem to have lost it, but don't panic. It's safe to say then that any movie version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was going to be somewhat divisive. Some fans prefer the radio series, some the BBC TV show, some the books, some a mixture of all of the above, some all of the above. Everyone has their definitive Hitchhiker's Guide. Everyone except Douglas Adams himself. Because Douglas Adams struggled with deadlines. He wasn't a prolific writer. He was easily the king of procrastination and he reportedly had to be locked in a hotel room by his editor to finish So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. And Adams also changed his ideas often. Canon in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy wasn't often canon. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was sometimes referred to as unfilmable in the sense that one film just probably wouldn't suffice. Even Adams himself would say, quote, Hitchhikers by its very nature has always been twisty and turny and going off into every direction. A film demands a certain shape and discipline that the material just isn't inclined to fit into, unquote. So the fact we got the film in 2005, and it's actually not terrible, it's pretty miraculous. Each adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was more of an exploration of the expansive universe that Adams had created than a literal rendering. The overall outline remained largely the same, but each medium had a different route to get there. Adams is often unfaithful to his own creation for a writer with such a vast universe, and the guide itself is more of a living, dynamic thing that evolves with each iteration. The movie version was originally going to come much, much earlier. Adams was first approached in the late 1970s by an unnamed American producer for a film and by ABC for an American TV series, but Adams would turn both of these offers down. Because this was post-Star Wars, and everyone in American media wanted a slice of that sweet, sweet Star Wars pie. Sensing the marketability of Adam's story, they pitched it to him as, quote, Star Wars with jokes. It's no wonder Adams rejected them. This story first came to light in David Hughes' book, The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made. After the radio show, the book, and a double LP... Three professional stage productions were put on in 1979 and 1980 at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, at Theatre Cluid in Wales and the Rainbow Theatre in London. These were followed in 1981 by the BBC TV series starring Simon Jones as Arthur Dent, David Dixon as Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davy as Zaphod Beeblebrox, Sandra Dickinson as Trillian and Stephen Moore as the voice of Marvin. Simon Jones, Stephen Moore and Mark Wing Davy reprise their roles from the original radio series. Sandra Dickinson is actually actor David Tennant's mother-in-law, just so you know. A fully animated version had been briefly discussed in the autumn of 1978, but it was eventually decided to make most of the series feature live action and only animate the guide's entries. It only had six episodes, but many see it as the definitive version of the material. 
Director-producer Alan J.W. Bell and Mark Wing-Davy claimed that the second series with a plot derived from Adam Shell's Doctor Who and Cricketman projects was the plan, as opposed to merely creating a TV adaptation of the second radio series. The second series was never produced because Adams had disagreements with the BBC and accounts vary, issues with the money, scripts and having Alan J.W. Bell involved are all mooted as explanations. But what happened instead was the third book, Life, the Universe and Everything, would utilise elements from Doctor Who and the Cricketman. The BBC was planning a Laserdisc release of the Hitchhiker's TV series in the mid-1980s, but the project was shelved due to a legal dispute over the movie rights. And this was according to Neil Gaiman, who also reveals this in the first edition of his biography of Douglas Adams, Don't Panic. But in 1982, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was optioned as a Hollywood movie by producers Ivan Reitman, Joe Medjug and Michael C. Gross. Douglas Adams was, of course, involved and he would write three draft scripts, with American producers very keen to maintain an American cast in order to sell the project to American viewers, with the casting choices being Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd for Ford Prefect. Obviously, both actors and Ivan Reitman would go on to make Ghostbusters instead. The project lay dormant as Adams would continue with his novels, with The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, published in 1980, Life, the Universe and Everything in 1982, so long a thanks for all the fish in 1984 and mostly harmless in 1992. A posthumous entry and another thing was written by Owen Colfer in 2009 with the support of Adam's widow Jane Belson. Adams was always working on the potential for a feature film in the background though and he would keep some of the latent ideas from the 1982 version including the potential for American cast members. He would always insist Arthur was British but that a character like Ford could easily be American. It would be the success of Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery in 1997 and then Meet the Parents in 2000, which resurrected The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy film once more. As director Jay Roach, bolstered by the success of those comedies, would secure a new deal with Adams and with Disney distributing the movie. Adams always wanted a big budget adaptation with the backing of a major studio and he signed the deal with Disney through Touchstone Pictures in 1998. Adams was once again commissioned to write the script and while Jay Roach wouldn't be directing it himself, he would offer the position to Spike Jones with Hugh Laurie as Arthur Dent and Jim Carrey as Zaphod, arguably a characterisation which probably remains a little bit in Sam Rockwell's performance. And when everything was set to go into production, the worst happened. Douglas Adams, who'd finished the script by this point, making his own new amendments as he went, would pass away suddenly on the 11th of May 2001 from undiagnosed coronary artery disease by a heart attack after a regular gym session. After his death, no one wanted the project to die with Adams, especially not Jay Roach, nor producer Robbie Stamp, one of Adams' longtime friends. Adams' final draft was submitted shortly before he died, and Carrie Kirkpatrick was brought on board to rewrite it to make it work as a film while also satisfying the studio, Adam's estate and longtime fans of the material. The extent of his rewrites is unknown, but various changes such as the point of view gun and the character Homer Kavula came from Adams himself. But in many ways, Kirkpatrick had a thankless task. He would write in the official blog for the film that he was an avid Monty Python fan growing up and that he'd actually never read Adam's books before being contacted about the writing job. But he saw this as an advantage because he wasn't a fan of the material. He had no preconceived notions. There was no Babelfish translating fan expectations. 
His job was to make what Adams wrote work for the screen. Jay Roach thought his attitude was perfect because once Kirkpatrick did read the material, he loved it immediately and wanted to do it. He pitched his ideas to Disney, Spyglass and Robbie Stamp. He got the job and started writing in September 2002. His research included all of the radio plays on CD and used the formulation for the start of the restaurant at the end of the universe to make the screenplay a story so far story. He didn't watch the BBC TV series, instead choosing to read scripts for the radio show. He was given yet another priceless piece of information when Robbie Stamp forwarded to Kirkpatrick electronic copies of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Files from Douglas Adams' own hard drive, including notes on his drafts, notes from him to the studio, random ideas and bits of dialogue exchanges, including unfinished scenes, character backstories and notes to himself on areas where he was having problems. Robbie Stamp would become a crucial ally in his writing process for this movie and he was able to answer the what would Douglas have wanted questions. He also read biographies of Douglas Adams. Joel Greengrass sent documentaries. Kirkpatrick would say that through all of this material, quote, I found myself feeling an odd connection to the man I have never met. There were some eerie similarities between us, mutual love of Max, wannabe rock guitarists, world-class procrastinators, avoidance a huge part of the writing process, love of satire, belief that nothing is so sacred that it can't be poked fun at, to name a few. The biggest difference, however, was that Douglas was an amazing conceptual thinker, and I tend to be stronger with structure. This, as it turns out, was a stroke of good luck because many of the concepts were already there. They just needed a tighter structure in which to exist and thrive, unquote. With Spike Jones no longer available, he would recommend Garth Jennings and producer Nick Goldsmith, aka Hammer and Tongs, known for their inventive music videos for Blur's Coffee and TV, Fatboy Slim's Right Here, Right Now, and Supergrass's Pumping on Your Stereo. All very amazing 90s music, by the way. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy would be Jennings' feature film directorial debut, and he and Goldsmith would find the big-budget studio experience to be sometimes cumbersome on Hitchhikers, despite having very little studio interference in the making of the movie. Kerry Kirkpatrick would say of the pair that he was gutted to not be working with Jay Roach, but when Spike Jones suggested Hammer and Tongs, Kirkpatrick was stunned to find out they wanted to speak to him as the writer before anyone else. Kirkpatrick would praise the pair for their creative spark and inspiration, saying that not since working with Nick Park and Peter Lord at Ardman on Chicken Run, that's episode 78 of this podcast, by the way, yes, the same Kerry Kirkpatrick who wrote the screenplay for Chicken Run. Kirkpatrick finished his first draft at Christmas 2002, and by May 2003, Nick Goldsmith and Garth Jennings were on board and given their own ideas for further drafts of the material but fundamentally keeping as much of Adam's original work and ideas as possible while tailoring the middle to include the love triangle and focus on character relationships. Before turning the third draft to the studio, Kirkpatrick, along with Robbie Stamp and Hammer and Tongs, visited Douglas Adams' widow Jane Belson to have tea, of course, and she gave the script her blessing. But another thing Hammer and Tongs brought was their unique British sensibilities. On casting Martin Freeman, he was one of Jennings' earliest choices, and it's pretty clear that Freeman is perfectly cast as Arthur Dent. The only character who had to be British was Arthur, and so American choices for both Zafford and Trinian were always in contention, even for the 1982 and 2001 versions. The hardest role to cast was actually that of the narrator, the literal voice of The Hitchhiker's Guide. Douglas Adams has always wanted Stephen Fry, and they kept coming back to Fry, and so. Stephen Fry eventually got the job. 
For Marvin the Paranoid Android, the design came down to the description, brain the size of a planet. Planets are big and round. And so the idea to make him small with a huge round head came to be. Warwick Davis would bring his performance to life with the inimitable Alan Rickman providing the voice. And Jim Henson's Creature Shop would create Marvin's design, along with the design of the Vogons and the Whale. And this was led by Project Supervisor Jamie Courtier. And while the legacy of this movie is mixed for the fans of the material, one way this movie holds up incredibly well is, let's say it together, the practical effects. So Jim Henson's Creature Shop costume for Marvin the Paranoid Android was designed by Joe Collins and created by Nicola Tedman and Paul Germain. It was made from fiberglass. The Marvin costume puppet weighed 55 pounds. The prototype was built around Warwick Davis and the head itself weighed 14 pounds. Davis would wear a fiberglass brace over his head and down his back with synthetic bungee cord muscles to take the weight of the head if he bent down rather than his own neck muscles. He manoeuvred using two TV monitors inside Marvin's head. For one of the final scenes when Marvin is shot by Vogon laser blasts, the suit was rigged with squibs and Davis was given a button to press for each squib explosion. And Warwick Davis would do that scene in just one take. Davis also provided Marvin's dialogue on set, but it was replaced in post by Alan Rickman. For the Vogons, the bureaucratic race of aliens who torture with poetry, Henson's Creature Shop created incredibly intricate live-action puppets and suits that could act and perform for the camera as each character. The Vogons would gently turn to the director after the takes were finished to discuss their performance or perhaps to complain about their trailers, which allowed the real actors to interact convincingly on set. And it was not an accident, according to executive producer Robbie Stamp, and it was always the intention of the production to not use computer-generated characters. Many of the Vogon animatronic heads have become available at various online auctions over the years. Even the whale was a detailed 11-foot-long model built by the Creature Shop, filmed in freefall with a few digital effects added in post. And digital effects obviously were used in the movie, but mostly for grand dramatic shots that couldn't be achieved any other way. The planet factory floor where unique planets are put together is one of the most impressive and challenging computer-generated effects sequences in the whole movie. It was created by Cinesite, which provided almost all of the digital effects for the film. An extensive amount of pre-visualisation was done in Cinema 4D for the Planet Factory scene, and Cinesite used this as well as the building blocks from the art department to construct the lengthy sequence. The scene was shot in full-grade Super 35 for a 235 release and in 185 for the DVD. Cinesite would be involved with the production for 18 months. And various visual in-jokes such as Adam's head being the head planet his nose being used as doorknobs and chairs were all done after Adam's head had been scanned for the computer game Starship Titanic in 1998. One technique that the team had expected to be able to use to save time that didn't really work was the jump cuts in the opening destruction of Earth. The theory was that for the infinite pullout from Earth to outer space, the sequence would be done as a series of jump cuts, avoiding the need for the whole sequence to be rendered as one shot. While it sounded great, it completely backfired. Not only did they end up having to actually render the whole sequence to decide which frames to use for the cut and avoid continuity jumps, because the camera was no longer flying around but jumping in stages, they couldn't use motion blur to hide the seams and blur the layers. They used a traditional approach of matte paintings with volumetric clouds projected on a flat polygon, but without motion blur. And this shot was extremely unforgiving. Added to this problem, the model shoot of the Vogon ship was determined to not be close enough to the camera and ended up being fully replaced by a CG version of the ship. 
This shot took almost the entire period of the film's post-production on that one sequence alone, with up to four people at a time working on it. Even the explosion of Earth, which was painstakingly modelled as a complex CG explosion over 30 to 40 frames, got compressed and cut to six frames. And it actually ended up as a classic comedy moment, meant to symbolise just how mundane Earth was in the grand scheme of a hyperspace bypass. And as I've said many times on this podcast, oftentimes visual effects do age a movie. And in my opinion, Zaphod's second head does struggle to hold up. But this was one of the most challenging effects for the team, with state-of-the-art animatronics considered, but in the end, a mix of prosthetics and digital effects were used. Jennings and screenwriter Kerry Kirkpatrick were aware that a simple two-headed man was not what they were looking for. When the character got angry or excited, the idea was to make the second head emerge from the first like a Pez dispenser. As a result, the head wasn't required to be visible each time the character appeared on screen, and so Sam Rockwell had to wear a prosthetic head mould on the top of his head, and over the time CGI was used to add the head. These choices constrained the effect to only about 35 shots. Sam Rockwell famously based his performance on former US President George W. Bush, but I don't think it's too far to suggest that maybe a more recent former president is also a prescient future target, but I digress. One of the things you could say about Adam's work in general is that it does do a great job at predicting the future. On Vogspear, the planet of the Vogons, paddles slap anyone with original idea. The shooting of the scene was on location and it really was a battle of humans versus the elements. The scene was shot at the Estrad Quarry near Trefil in Wales and it was bitterly cold. Uh, the rain was horizontal and everything you see on screen was shot in two minute gaps between the weather turning. And this movie was shot primarily here in the UK in the village of Hare Street in Hertfordshire at the Beehive Pub and a few miles away at a solitary house on the B1368, which was Arthur Dent's house. Humakavula's Temple was in Camden Town in London. The opening scene of the Dolphins was unsurprisingly not shot in rainy England, but at Lurrow Park in Puerto de la Cruz, Tenerife. And it is the largest dolphin show pool in Europe. And filming was a fun experience for everyone, despite the weather. Zoe Deschanel would be heartbroken that a side arc for Trillian being part alien was cut. She loved the movie, the people she worked with, and she would have loved to have made more. But unfortunately, that would never come to pass. There would be no more hitchhiking across this galaxy for this cast. And speaking of, let's segue to the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. This is a part of the podcast where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he is the best of men. And this is an interesting one, actually, because Keanu Reeves would star in a movie called Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. And you might be wondering, well, what's that got to do with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, let me tell you, the movie co-stars Uma Thurman. The character that Uma Thurman plays has a very large thumb and she uses that very large thumb to hitchhike. See, there is a point. So, there you go. That is the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. Even Cowgirls Get the Blues also contains a hitchhiker. So, the music for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the score includes a reworked version of the 1981 TV adaptation's music. And there are two versions of the song, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. The first is a Broadway-style lively version sung by the dolphins before they leave Earth. And the second plays over the end credits and is in the style of smooth jazz. Written by English composer Joby Talbot, conductor Christopher Austin and director Garth Jennings and performed by the Tenenbrake Choir. 
Neil Hannon, founder and frontman of the Irish pop group The Divine Comedy, sang the version of the song played during the end credits. And if you've ever heard a song by The Divine Comedy, you can very much tell it's sung by the lead singer of The Divine Comedy. So let's talk about the release of this movie because this is kind of where the story goes a little bit downhill because it was released on the 29th of April 2005 domestically in the US and it opened at number one at the box office. But to be honest, there wasn't much out that same week, only really Triple X State of the Union. But while things started strong for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in its second week it would drop down to fourth, with a 52% drop in takings. And this was after the release of Kingdom of Heaven, House of Wax and Crash. And then in its third week, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith came out. And I think that's all you need to know about the situation with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. On its $50 million budget, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy made $51 million domestically in the US and $43.4 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $104.5 million, meaning it possibly just broke even after marketing costs were taken into consideration. And while the movie sets up the restaurant at the end of the universe, we would never get to see it. Critics were mixed to positive, but straight down the middle, 60% of Rotten Tomatoes, it's classed as fresh, but only just. They would praise the look and Adam's trademark zany humour, but criticised the casting choices. And it was also rather unfairly compared to Galaxy Quest. So while there was every intention to make a sequel to this movie, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy does set up its own sequel, Unfortunately, it just didn't make enough money to warrant a sequel. And so we will never get any sequels within this particular universe. However, there is a planned television series for Hulu, which was announced in July 2019, with the showrunner of Carlton Cuse alongside Jason Fuchs, who will also be writing the show. The series was set to premiere in 2021. Production was slated to start in the summer of 2020, but obviously COVID-19 happened. And so production on the series was delayed. There have been rumours that it did start production in May 2021, but nothing's really been heard about it since. So I don't know whether it was quietly cancelled, but a TV series does seem to be the best place to go for this material. Let's go through some social media thoughts. I think this is going to be a wild ride, so buckle in. I like to ask on social media what people think of the movies that I'm featuring. I like to start with the patrons. So we're going to start with Philip, who says, It gets a lot of hate, but I think it's a really good adaptation. We also have a patron comment from Andy, who says, Confession time, I hadn't read the book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy until after seeing this movie. I know, time to turn in my nerd card. I have to say, having no preconceptions based on not having read the book in my formative years, I really enjoyed the film. It's a great way to introduce people to the works of Douglas Adams, if nothing else, still a fun watch. And as always, I like to give patrons a bit of a plug for their own podcast, if they have one. And Andy's podcast is called Geek Salad, and it is basically life, the universe and everything about all things geek. So if you are interested in the ultimate question, then maybe pop over to Geek Salad and you will find the ultimate answer. I will put some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. And then we have kind of a double comment, really, because we've got a comment from Laurel who says, I think it's a valiant adaptation with tons of charm and a near-perfect cast. It deserves more credit for its spot-on humour and heart, not to mention production value on a relatively modest budget. 
It had lots to live up to and I think it was quite successful, highly rewatchable too. And then her husband Derek also piped up to say, Huge fan, read all the books and I adore the movie. Other than Arthur getting the gun at the end, the movie captures the whimsical absurdity of the books and keeps me laughing all the way through. When I meet new people, I'm prone to saying 42 to see if they're cool. Don't panic. And Laurel and Derek, their podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And The Midnight Myth actually do have an episode on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I know because I've listened to it and it is, as always, an exceptional episode from them. So not only will I put information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth, which you should absolutely listen to, I will also pop a link to their episode in the show notes too. And the final patron comment comes from Brendan, who says, A gentler version of a hilarious sci-fi satire that keeps the anarchic spirit of the original radio show and books and continuing the grand tradition of each medium gets a hitchhikers that's all its own, yet undeniably still hitchhikers. S-tier Martin Freeman and Sam Rockwell too. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at Alan R.K., who says, I think I was spoiled on the BBC video programme because I thought the movie had one good gag and spoiled its S-tier cast. At LPVO said, Personally, I thought it was memorably unmemorable, and maybe because I'm British and of a certain age, there is already a pretty perfect visual adaptation in the TV series. At Genuine Chit Chat said, I absolutely adore it. I wasn't a fan of the BBC series from the 80s, this movie is one of my all-time favourites. Every actor shines. Stephen Fry narrating is fantastic. I love him reading guide parts in and around scenes. So much fun. I'd love a modern series like it. At movie underscore drone said, A huge letdown for a book and radio series I love. Totally wrong. Tried to fit too much in. Just awful. On paper it sounds and should be amazing. Bitter disappointment in this one. At Movie Dual Pod said, I didn't love it, but didn't hate it. The major problem is Martin Freeman isn't a leading man, and the whole film depends on his character. It looks pretty amazing, neat little cast, and a few funny moments. Ultimately, it's just a bit boring. And at Little Bird Carb just replied saying, Agree. At Diabolical Pod said, I'm not a devotee of the books and didn't have high expectations. I remember hearing some dork in maths class laughing with our teacher about 42 and thinking, what twee and funny smeg. But I thought the film was fun and well-made. I'd happily watch it again. And at Why Not Pod said, Really enjoyed this film. Arguably not as good as what came before, but a worthy update. Love the new design of Marvin too. Still have a toy of him by my desk. I also maintain that if this had done better at the box office, the Red Dwarf movie would have happened as a result. At So What Happens N1 said, An underappreciated film that captures the quirkiness of the books while perhaps unfortunately shuffling some events around from the greater series. If you want an accurate take on the book, this isn't it. If you want a spiritually similar take to Adam's work, this is for you. At Neil Burt said, When I saw this at the cinema, it was really my first introduction into the series. I then immediately bought the book and read that. That's as far as I went. I loved the film at first and upon a recent-ish 2017 watch, I still enjoyed it. Visually fun with a great cast, the blue whale bit is fantastic and the casting of Alan Rickman as Marvin is perfect. Also, the design of Marvin is also great. At KJNA Podcast said, Loved this film from start to end. The cast really sold it for me. Especially most Def and Alan Rickman probably should read the books. Lol. At Trey Roke said, Unfilmable, the radio series, the best interpretation. 
at Joe underscore Hansbarger said, Douglas Adams is easily my favourite writer, but this film was initially a letdown. I did warm up to it years later, though. Preferring an all-English cast, I disliked most of who they hired, apart from Freeman and Rickman. Masterpiece opening music, though. At Xenos Infinity said, It's not a perfect film, but as an adaptation of a book whose author thought it might be unfilmable, it's a solid attempt. Also, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish is a surprisingly potent earworm, not to be confused with a babelfish which goes in ears but is not a worm. No comments on Instagram, but more comments on Facebook. So let's delve into those. We're going to start with Kira who says, I love this movie. It's one of my go-to movies to put on if I need a pick-me-up. It just always makes me laugh. My husband and I saw it in the theatres with friends while we were dating. On our way out of the theatre, a guy behind us complained that we were laughing too much during the movie. Not too loud, too much. Buddy, if you think we were laughing too much, you don't get the point of the movie. I knew nothing about the book at the time other than the title and the weird little green guy on the cover. My husband had read the book and had played a text-based computer game about it back in the 80s. I have fond memories of him telling me about that game and aspects of the book, like the Babelfish and how important it is to always have your towel, while we were on a date at our favourite diner before we were going to see the movie. In addition to how wonderful and hilarious the movie is, I think it just has a special place in my heart because of that nostalgia. And I haven't even mentioned all the specific things I love. The fact that so many of the creatures and effects were practical. The Vogons were all practical puppets. Marvin's design was adorable and endearing while conveying his moodiness, aided in no small part by the magic of Alan Rickman's voice. The little crab on the Vogon planet jumping and going wee and then getting crushed by the spaceship door, somehow hilarious and tragic at the same time. The falling whale, I wonder if it'll be friends with me. Hello, ground. Thud, again, hilarious and tragic. I could go on, but my comment already seems super long. Long story short, this movie is the best. Brian also has a comment. He says, I went to the premiere with a group of friends, all wearing robes and carrying towels because we loved the book so much. We absolutely hated the movie. Martin Freeman was great and I had a huge crush on Zoe Deschanel, so I didn't mind too much that she didn't match how I pictured Trillian at all. I've seen it again since and liked it better, but it still never captured the feeling of hitchhikers to me. Tony says, An amazing film with an excellent cast. Martin Freeman was brilliant as Arthur Dent, whilst Zoe Deschanel was perfect as Trillian. Sam Rockwell, Most Death, Bill Nye and Alan Rickman. Why didn't we get The Restaurant at the End of the Universe as a follow-up film? To which Brian actually responded and said, I feel like they kind of ruined that by botching the joke at the end of the first one. It's at the other end of the universe. I was really looking forward to this being a whole series, but I didn't really have any faith after seeing the first one. Mixed bag of comments. I think it's fair to say for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but to be honest, I actually completely anticipated a mixed bag of comments because I know this movie is so divisive. But before I tell you what I think about this movie in my episodic summary, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone for your comments on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And if you would like your comment read out in episodes, I put thoughts posts up on social media, normally on a Friday. Let me know what you think of the movie and I will feature your comment in episodes and I will credit you for it as well. So what do I think? Well, let's, let's go into it, shall we? Because in many ways, the legacy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy can be seen everywhere we look. And great science fiction often does become science fact. And surely Douglas Adams never thought we'd all have access to our own Hitchhiker's Guide whenever we have a question about something that we could easily find the answer to immediately. 
in many ways, an adaptation like this is almost doomed from the beginning, and yet I can't help but admire it, not only for carrying on in the wake of Douglas Adams' untimely death, but for daring to be different, embracing the practical effects, not being a carbon copy of what came before. You could say it's mostly harmless. I know ardent fans don't agree. The comments say just as much, and I expected harsh comments. And while I do think there is some inspired casting, such as Freeman, Davis, Rickman, Nye, Mirren and Fry, the American side of the cast is a little bit more mixed, in my opinion. Zoe Deschanel is actually not a bad casting choice as the manic pixie dream girl of everyone's dreams in the mid-2000s, but Trillian is written so poorly that she's actually given very little to do. Most death is fine, but in my mind struggles with the chemistry with him and Martin Freeman, because we're supposed to believe they're longtime friends, but I just don't see that. Sam Rockwell is watchable and fun, but still, there's something not quite there. For me, with his performance, he feels a little bit miscast, in my opinion, but I don't know. I really like the guy, so it's like, it feels a little bit absurd for me to say that he's miscast, but absurdity is all about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is all about absurdity, so maybe he is actually perfect. Things do happen without cause or reason or as a byproduct of the infinite improbability drive. Is it ridiculous that Vogons need all that paperwork signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again and finally buried in soft peat for three months and recycled as fire lighters? Yes. Ecosystems are destroyed for bypasses all the time. Future AI is programmed with genuine people personalities and the result is paranoid androids and annoyingly cheerful doors. The universe is big and complex, and the answer to everything is 42. Douglas Adams knew how to satirise bureaucracy and politics, but I don't think he ever realised how prescient his works would be. A 3 by 4 inch electronic screen with access to a huge searchable repository of information? That'll never catch on. An instant translation device? Does anyone remember the website Babelfish from the early 2000s? Because I certainly do. But I use Google Translate pretty much all the time now whenever I see any foreign text. With all the preceding media and Douglas Adams' death, it's a miracle this movie exists. And while I'm sure there are plenty of naysayers who would rather it didn't, it did its job of introducing a whole new generation of viewers to Adams' work. It condensed as much as possible into a sub-two-hour film and Adams' estate were happy enough with the finished product. And in an era of fan service and fan expectations, his estate liking it probably doesn't mean that much. Maybe it's just that this movie turned up too late to fully capitalise on Hitchhiker's popularity. That doesn't mean Hitchhiker's isn't still around, albeit not in its usual form. Coincidentally, in 2005, the same year as this movie, the BBC revived Doctor Who, which is still going. The BBC also commissioned a little sci-fi show called Red Dwarf in 1988, that was inspired by The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, albeit slightly more nihilistic. Radiohead's song Paranoid Android was inspired by Marvin the Paranoid Android in 1997. But really, maybe the most important piece of legacy to come from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy isn't the need for your towel, but the device you're listening to this podcast on. Imagine a device so densely packed with information, it will tell you anything and everything you need to know deep thought, indeed. And if you're still wondering what the answer to life, the universe and everything actually is, I actually have the answer because it's...
Now, I know it's a lot to take in, and trust me, I was shocked too. But the most important thing you can do right now, don't panic. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I would love for you to get involved with this podcast. I would love for you to help this podcast grow. If you have loved this podcast and you've loved previous episodes of this podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Ideally, five stars, please. You can go on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, and now Threads as well. On all of the social medias, I'm at Verbal Diorama. Or you could simply tell your friends or family about this podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you might also like the following movies slash episodes. So the first one I'm going to recommend is actually a slightly older episode. It's episode 24, and it's on a movie called Passengers which is nothing like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, except it's also set in space. And it's also a very divisive movie with kind of a lot of problems that could be very easily fixed with one small change to the movie. It was pretty unique when it came out because it was a fairly original idea for a sci-fi movie. It wasn't linked to any existing IPs. It had two huge stars at the helm. It had Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, but it kind of didn't do so well. So maybe check that movie out if you're interested, but also listen to the episode. Episode 53, Serenity. Again, a movie that I absolutely love. It's based on the TV show Firefly. If you haven't seen Firefly, please go and watch it. But Joss Whedon, incredibly problematic, and I'm never here to kind of promote him. But Serenity and Firefly, by extension, is a wonderful TV series slash movie. The movie was the culmination of the ending of the TV show, which ended far too soon. And we only got one season of Firefly. But again, Serenity set in space and kind of funny. So that's the link. And the final movie I want to recommend is a movie that I've mentioned actually in this episode. Not Chicken Run, but Galaxy Quest. And that is episode 54. And Galaxy Quest is genuinely one of the greatest comedies ever made. It's incredibly funny. It's kind of unfair, I think, that The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is compared to Galaxy Quest. Obviously, Galaxy Quest, you do have Sam Rockwell in that movie. You also have Alan Rickman in that movie, one of his greatest performances, in my opinion, in Galaxy Quest. But otherwise, they are very, very different movies. But if you've never seen Galaxy Quest, you are in for such a treat. It is so wonderful. And as always, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. The next episode... I'm going to be doing some horror. Now, horror is something that I'm not the biggest fan of, admittedly, but people always ask me to do more horror. And I thought to myself, well, what horror movie do I want to do? And I wanted one that was obviously fairly scary, but also really important for so many reasons. And so the next episode is a pioneering horror movie in more ways than one. To be honest, I've never seen the movie before in my life. So I'm watching this for the very first time for this episode. And it is on the history and legacy of Night of the Living Dead, the 1968 original. George A. Romero's classic horror has spawned not only a media franchise, but also defined zombie movies for decades to come, as well as being completely in the public domain due to it never being copyrighted. 
I'm so excited to watch Night of the Living Dead, actually, even though it's a horror movie. But I'm also so excited to talk about the story behind this movie because I think it genuinely is a fascinating story. Please join me next week for the history and legacy of Night of the Living Dead 1968. But in the meantime, if you want to support this podcast, well, you're doing it right now by listening. And if you're sharing this podcast and telling your friends, you're also supporting this podcast. So thank you so much. But if you do want to support it financially, you can. You can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can become a patron of this podcast, joining the amazing patrons. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Nicholas, Zoe, Keb, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. You can also do one-off tips now as well. So you can go to verbaldiorama.com slash tips and you could give me a one-off tip of $1, $5, whatever you want to give if you've enjoyed this episode, but you don't want to commit to a monthly Patreon. I totally understand money is tight for everyone right now. So that option is also available if you would like it. I also have a merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com. And you can also find my stuff at filmstories.co.uk. You can find the articles that I write, and also you can buy copies of the magazine that I write in too. And finally... Bye. Movie should know.